1: Hello and welcome to the Middlesex County Cricket League podcast. Um, my name's Dan Huff. I'm from Twickenham CC. Very pleased to be able to welcome, um, well, to, two guys from North London Cricket Club, really. First of all, um, Salman Ali, our, our resident league uh, stats guru. Uh, um, hi, Sal. Are you OK? Yep, Good. Thanks, Dan. Good evening to you. Good evening and very pleased to be able to welcome certainly a voice that I, I would expect just about everybody listening to this pod will know um and that's simon mann from north london cc and of course tms hi simon hello dan nice to be with you well great that you could make make time for us i believe you've um you've had a bit of a, a podcasting day right were you, were you podcasting elsewhere earlier in the day
2: uh well i was doing my own podcast today which is the uh the analyst inside cricket which is the promoted by the cricketer. And we just talk about the events of the week, really. Look back, look ahead. Talking about South Africa. Talking about the sad death of, of Bob Willis as well. Uh, very sad news this week. That he died at the age of 70. So, yeah, d- uh, doing my own uh, podcast. But it's nice to be part of yours as well.
1: Fantastic. It's, it's great to have you uh, on board. And we, we were going to get to Bob Willis a bit later. I must admit, as, uh, as someone who grew up in the West Midlands, and, and of course, Bob was a, a Warwickshire man, I, um, uh, it was a bit of a shock, wasn't it, to the system to to, to see what happened to him. Um, I mean, without going into any details, did you did you know he was ill? Did anybody know he was ill, or was this all very, very quick?
2: Yeah, he, he was ill for a while. He he had cancer, and then complications set in. So I heard in New Zealand that that he was gravely ill about a couple of weeks ago during the first test at the the Bay Oval in Mount Maunganui. So it, it was no surprise when I heard the news. Uh, last week. Very, very sad news indeed. Uh, death at the age of, of 70. Tremendous character, uh, Bob Willis. One of the greats for England, when you think about it. 325 test match wickets. He was part of that old firm, if you like, of, of Botham and Willis. And then there's a new firm now, although not so new in a way. They're sort of moving towards the end of, of Anderson and Broad. But you know, one of England's greats, uh, an England captain as well. And then in the second part of his life in cricket if you accept that he was a commentator and pundit and i think sort of most famous recently for being part of the verdict on on sky sports which if england had a bad day was unmissable really because bob was a bit like a judge you know he would sentence everybody on the the day that they just had and he, you know his criticism was was harsh i think he sort of knew what he was doing bob he he understood that it was no good being bland. That if England had a bad day, then he he needed to to say it, which is quite strange when you think. Actually, as a player, he was quite sensitive to criticism. And after that nineteen eighty one Test match at Headingley, when he was took those eight for forty three, his his interview with Peter West. Now we are going back a long way now. His interview with Peter West was was sort of monosyllabic and and a bit grumpy. But Bob, um, when he had the microphone in front of him in the the latter part of his career was extremely forthright, and it has to be said, very entertaining with, with deadpan humour.
1: He was great value, wasn't he? And th- thinking about that 1981 test, because I, unfortunately I, I am uh, definitely old enough to remember that he, he was dropped twice for that test before he actually played. So, so there was there was no guarantee that he was even going to play. Mike Brearley wrote in, in his famous book *Phoenix on the Ashes* about how twice he left him out, and ultimately he only got in the side on the, the day before the game. So it really was a, a roller coaster ride for him. And I think people forget that Bob Willis was also quite a funny guy, wasn't he? I I, I remember one story from somebody at Warwickshire about they saw Bob marking his run-up out. And, of course, what a run-up it was. That's the first thing, you know, coming from miles to the side, zigzagging his way in. And he went further back, further back, further back. He got to the sight screen and then chucked his marker over the boundary rope and came back in to mark his run-up again and I, I I just thought it was brilliant the whole crowd thought he was literally going to come in from the side screen but he was um, yeah just playing a joke on them all, really and i thought that was nice he, he was there was more to him than met the eye that met the eye wasn't there
2: i think that's true i think a lot of people saw him on tv or heard him on tv and thought he was quite a dour character but there was a real humour to his broadcasting as well and if you if you looked closely it was there i think that that turned to the camera when it when he was on Sky doing the verdict, or sort of turn to the camera, sort of knowing stare to the camera as well, and then he would deliver his verdict. There was a sort of pantomime element to it. It was, it was, it was very knowing, and it was quite clever as well. It was, it was different. I think that's the point. It was a bit different. There was, there was no, no one else doing that sort of thing on TV uh, cricket punditry at all. And Bob sort of saw a, a niche in the market really, and he sort of, he owned it, and it, it it was very entertaining. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Um, going back to to a, perhaps a
1: slightly less illustrious playing career, I don't want to say anything negative about your own batting, Simon, or indeed your <laughs> feeling, which I hear was very good. But um, can you tell us a bit about how did you get into the game? Uh, I assume you sort of fell in love with it like we all did when you were a kid, right?
2: I was lucky, actually, because I went to a primary school which played cricket, which I don't know how many of them are around. Wow. I'm not sure <laughs> that, that many. Yeah, I went to a primary school that played cricket in, in Bristol. There were two teachers. Uh, Mr. Wright was the headmaster, and Mr. Scapins, I remember him, he was my fourth year teacher. I don't call it the fourth year anymore, I can't remember what they call it now, they might call it something like year six, but anyway, it was the fourth year in those days. Year year five, year Year, six, I can't remember what it is. Anyway, anyway, someone called Mr. Scapins, and uh, Mr. Harvey as well, so we had actually three who, who were all mad keen on cricket. And that, you know, that makes a huge difference. We didn't have wonderful facilities, but we had somewhere to play. And I remember thinking at the end of the football season, because I was mad keen on football as a, as a youngster, that, you know, about eight years of age, what do I do in the summer? And fortunately, the school played cricket. I remember my first ever uh, cricket match I played in, I was out first ball for naught, huge swipe <laughs> to the leg side. So that that shot definitely went... Um, into the locker after that and it was the old forward defensive you've got to learn to play the forward defensive and stay in and, and Simon who played with me for many years knows I did, I did. I was quite partial to a forward defensive shot you've got to stay in for a while
1: nothing wrong with M. Simon mine's the leave alone leave alone is the way to go for me people
2: don't play enough of those shots anymore uh, absolutely the leave and the block nothing quite like it because people get tired don't they after about two or three hours in the field on a Saturday afternoon it's a hot day people get tired and that is when you can punish them but if you're still if you're sitting in the pavilion, you can't punish them. That that's my philosophy. Only when i was playing club cricket, but the, the, yeah, that was the great thing. Is I played, uh, you know, from a very young age in primary school, and that's where I got into it. Great enthusiastic teachers who organised matches against other schools, and we played in schools competitions. And you know, it was a great thing to do in the summer. You play football in the winter, and you play cricket in the summer. And how, you know, that's extremely extremely that's lucky old school in now. That
1: position. I'm afraid football yeah. now, and I'm like a football fan like you, but twelve months a year, isn't it? And that's a
2: real challenge for all other sports. Yeah, it, it is. Football is king now. Football is king. Football's dominating, and cricket, it feels as if it's just got its little niche, and it's, it's fighting against that. Um, but back in the in the seventies when I started playing, it, it was it really was football in the, in the winter and cricket in the summer, and then, you know, there were there were players then who were able to play professionally as footballers and professionally as cricketers, someone like. Phil Neal, for example, who played for Worcestershire mm, and also sure, played yeah. for, for Lincoln City and Scunthorpe, but it's, it's almost impossible to do that now. You are both of them, of course, you play, oh, played. I T them played for yeah. Scunthorpe. Yeah. Mm.
1: I was going to say one last question on that: Did you play club
2: cricket in in Bristol at all, or, or not? Uh, I did. I played club cricket in Bristol, and I also played club cricket in Birmingham, where I was at university as well. And the thing I noticed about coming to London to play was how much tougher the game was, and how much Nastier the players were. It was, it was yeah, quite that's friendly. That's people in actually. the East for you. Yep. <laughs> it was friendly in Bristol, friendly in Birmingham, but sort of quite hard and tough in, in London. Simon, so how did you end up at North
3: London? Obviously, I was. I'm not sure if I've been as long as you have because I joined probably sort of mid 90s, from what I remember. Um, what was your sort of like, you know, journey getting to North London and playing with us guys on the on the famous fields at Monty Road?
2: Well, I moved to London from Birmingham in 1986, right at the end of the summer, actually. So for the following summer, I was looking for a club. I loved playing. I wanted to play when I came to London. I'd always played. I'd played from the age of about seven or eight every summer. I wanted to play cricket, and I I just scouted around, looked at the the nearest cricket clubs that were around, and it was just one of those things. I I think I phoned up one evening, and someone called Bernie Andrews, who was the former uh, chairman of the club, uh who's son now president gareth. yeah now president whose son gareth is well, a good friend of mine now and, and play for the club um yeah so i spoke to bernie andrews and said no we got nets on wednesday so i came down uh, the, the next wednesday and it, that that's how it all started really it was it, it was not planned in any sense it was just i happened to find north london find the number come down and just get into it play there for 20 years yeah,
3: exactly. So what was your impression of, of the I mean obviously you first played in the championship when you first joined and then from there you, you played I I'm imagine in the first couple of years of the of the county league when it sort of formed into three divisions. What can you remember of playing in the championship against some of the sort of real characters of the game then?
2: I think the thing I re- remember most about it, well A is the idyllic setting, which you know, just lovely with Alexandra Palace up on the on the hill there. So it was a lovely place uh, to play. That that was the, the first thing. And the the second thing was that it was just much tougher than I'd been used to before. People would, people would sledge you. There'd be the odd comment and, you know, you'd, the wiki keeper would say something. You'd look behind and he'd be looking down as if he hadn't said it. And, you know, it, it was, it was it were quite challenging, actually, and, you know, good fun. It's all, it, in a way, I suppose, coming to London generally as a person toughens you up a bit. London's a bit tougher, I think, than, than most other places in, in, the, in the country. And and the cricket was much tougher as well. I, I it was great fun as well. I mean, you, you know, you make friends. That's the other thing. I've you know I've made friends at at North London that I've, I've still got now, and you know they'll be friends for life. So there's that aspect uh, to it as well. And you, you get to play against all sorts of standards of players. For example, I remember um, playing against O.A. Shah, uh, who yep. was at Wickham, Wickham House at, at the time. Yep. I remember we ha- we had a, a A a guy called Ian Maticek, who was—I think it's it's, it's fair to say—was you know he wasn't the most uh, svelte (laughs) cricketer. I think he was called up to the first team for that match, and they called him Bouncer, and he he sort of jogged in, and he bowled Oishee Shah first ball. He bowled him a a rank full toss, which he missed, and hit him on the pad, and he was out LBW. And I think he dines out on that story, but you know there's some like he talks
3: about it now, yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, and and uh, on it Shah on his way. Uh, so yeah, there was some there were some quality cricketers around as well, and it, it was it was just gr- brilliant fun. It was a fantastic escape from from the you know the rest of your life. Saturday afternoon was cricket afternoon, and I always hated it whenever you saw on the weather forecast it was going to rain at the weekend. I hated it because I looked forward to playing so much, and actually, not just playing on a Saturday, playing on a Sunday as well, and playing midweek cup matches. If you could play three times a week. In the late 80s or early 90s, I always grabbed the opportunity uh, to do so. Fantastic.
3: Brilliant. It's obviously, I've seen you play many of your time and played alongside you. So I, can, I know what you can do. But how would you describe yourself to, to the rest of the listeners? Tell us
2: about, you know, what kind of player you were. Um, quite a defensive batsman, <laughs> I think is probably uh, true. I, when I look back, actually, Sal, I, I, I wish I had a, I wish I tried a few more shots really I think I think actually as a club cricketer, what you need is you need th- you need to have a solid defense and three attacking shots just practice those solidly so basically four shots the defensive shot and then three attacking shots you can decide what they are whether it's the the slog or the cut shot or the drive down the ground but yeah two or three really strong shots concentrate on those concentrate on a strong defense to make sure you can stay in and, and see off the new ball and, and the good bowlers but yeah, chance a bit more. And I think actually probably youngsters these days, younger players in club cricket are a bit more aggressive these days because they see the top players playing that way. Now, mm-hmm. uh, But when I was growing up, you know, one of the heroes was someone like Geoffrey Boycott. And, he, you know, his, his ideal was to stay in for about, eight, for about eight hours and you sort of copied them, really. But I think these days, players coming into the game, young players, they look at people like Stokes and they look at people like Joss Butler and they want to play like them. And actually, it is more fun. Uh, playing like them but of course if you know if you do get one chance uh, every week which is effectively what it is you want to make the most of it you don't want to bat for 12 balls you actually want to bat for an hour so you know th- there's that balance i think and uh, so that's one part of it batting i love i actually love fielding and when i stopped playing when the reasons i stopped playing was because i stopped enjoying fielding because i just found three hours in the field uh, too hard especially you know, on, a, on a hot day And, you know, your eyes go a little bit. You start to drop one or two catches, which is hugely frustrating. So, uh, defensive batsman probably. uh, I think I was a reasonable fielder. Sal, you play with me. A reasonable fielder. I used to catch most things. And a a pretty awful bowler of (laughs) left arm filth. And that's about it, which I wasn't (laughs) called upon very often. We'll come to that
1: later. Yes, we will come back to that one son. I found it really interesting though, because I wouldn't talk down the three shots thing. I mean, Alistair Cook scored ten thousand plus test runs with three shots. Um, I know he had more, but when he played Test cricket, it was absolutely clear that that he he had his strengths and he was gonna stick to them. And and I think having a bit of stickability, knowing what you can do, um and and then executing it is is a skill that I think is 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 underrated in this day and age. And I, I say that because because I remember at, at, at Twickenham, we, we had an opening bat who was about 14 years old from Afghanistan, basically, that only ever played the game on the streets. And the first thing he did, first ball of a game when I was playing with him was a dill scoop. And I was like, you know, th- th- this is a crime against humanity. You can't go and dill scoop in first ball. But, of course, he's 14 and I'm not. And, um, and it was a breath of fresh air. But I do think the three shots thing, there's more to that than... Than simply being stodgy, it's it's a great way to, to, to be successful as well. I was going to ask you something. Did you ever have the the, the honour of playing on Twickenham Green, or, or or did that pass you by?
2: I don't think. I, no, I didn't play there. I often go past it actually, but I I don't. I've, I've never played there. I've played on many many grounds in London, but um, that ground has never seen my forward defensive. I'm afraid.
1: What was the fielding I was thinking of? Our outfield is known throughout the county for being just like law. No, it's not. No, our outfield is really average. Um, so even the best fielders, I think, would have a challenge, <laughs> you know, making sure nothing went through uh, on Twickenham Green. But there we go. You've you, you've missed out there. Can I just move it forward a bit? Now, of course, we we know you primarily because of the the great work that you and, and the team do with with TMS. Now, uh, how do you, how do you end up being uh, one of the voices of TMS? Uh, how did you get there?
2: Well, I joined the BBC on their as, uh, on their local radio unit in in 1990. I actually worked at Capital Radio. Uh, before that and then i moved on to the bbc i I basically i sort of worked my way up i suppose i the bb what the bbc allows you to do um once you get established there in the sports department is specialize and and go for the sports that you are interested in so my two sports really um well football and cricket i did play a lot of rugby when i was younger actually but i found that too brutal so i gave that up but yeah so football and, and cricket and I pursued those interests and gradually people give you an opportunity and you know you can show what you you do i went on an england a tour to australia uh, and then i went on an england a tour to south africa and so you you gradually get more and more established and people give you a chance and give you a chance at commentary i remember doing some uh, reports on a test match england new zealand uh, for, for radio 5 live and it, it, it is about working your working way up and being patient, I think, as well. I mean, some for some people, it happens. It's like batting then, isn't uh, it, really? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Exactly. For some people, it happens quickly. And for other people, it doesn't happen so quickly. So bide your time. Um, stay in there. Work your way up. And eventually, uh, someone will let you commentate on the World Cup final, which is what happened in the summer. Crazy. And what, what was the first test you did on TMS? Can you remember? The first test I did on TMS is actually quite a famous one in a, in a way. It was unique at the time. I think it's happened subsequently. It was the first test match to finish in a draw with the scores level, England-Zimbabwe oh, wow. in, in, yes. in Bulawayo in in 1996 uh, when Heath Streak uh, advised his bowlers. He was a Zimbabwe captain to bowl down the leg siding and got very frustrated and they, they couldn't score the 200 and odd they needed. Uh, under time pressure on, on the final day. I think it was something like 210 off 38 overs they needed. In the match finished in a, in a draw with scores level. So, it, it, you know, a unique game. And for me, obviously, a, a memorable game. It was a fantastic experience. I was commentating alongside Henry Blofeld and uh, Don Mosey was there. I think Je- Jeffrey was there as well. Jeffrey Boycott uh, was there. So that was my first experience of commentating on Test Match Special uh Bulawayo England against New Z- England against Zimbabwe 1996
1: wow and, and of course people will probably um not remember but back then Zimbabwe were were, were a decent side mm. weren't they he street was certainly a decent bowler and they're not you know in a very difficult position now and have been for a, for a fair old time but they, they had some decent players didn't they that was there
2: was a competitive times it, absolutely they were they were a good side they actually beat england in the one day series on that tour and it was a really frustrating tour for England that was the that test match the Bulawayo game was the match after which David Lloyd who was the Bumble who's on Sky now England coach said we flippin' murdered them and people <laughs> yeah. were looking around thinking Hold yeah, on, the game, the game ended in a draw yeah so uh, yeah no they were, they were a good size very sad to see what's happened to Zimbabwe cricket uh, subsequently and I, I fear that um, South African cricket might be going in a, in a similar way at the moment they need to be very careful because uh, they, they've got huge problems as well
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was. I was going to sort of mention South Africa in another context. Now, if I've got this right, um, shortly after that 1996 test, um, I think if my memory serves me right, you were lucky enough to be commentating on a, on a South Africa Australia semi final at the home of cricket, Edgebaston, right? Is it In 1999.
2: Yeah. Home of cricket, Edgebaston. Okay. I'll, no, I'll let that one pass by outside. We'll that idea. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The, B- the BBC in those days had the uh, well, they had the, the cricket contract for the for the uh, domestic international summit. It was the World Cup, but actually they they were going out of cricket. Then they lost the rights to Channel Four, but that was the last time they covered uh, cricket in this country. It was the, the World Cup, and they had a mixture of live matches and highlights. And the Edgbaston semi-final was one of their highlights matches. And I'd been doing some highlights for the BBC during that uh, summer, and they asked me to do the the semi-final at Edgbaston, Australia against South Africa. And I remember asking the, my scorer on the, the day, Joe King. I remember saying to her about an hour before the game, game finished, or scheduled to finish as we moving towards the conclusion. I said, "What what happens if this game is a tie?" And she said, "Oh, she had a you know, did some research and oh, well, Australia will will go through." I can't remember what the technicality was now. It was something to do with the group stages. Australia will go through. So fortunately, when that event occurred i knew exactly what had happened and why it was why australia were were celebrating despite the fact the match finished in the tie i think it was one of the great one day matches actually it was just it was just brilliant theater shane Warne, absolutely magnificent and south africa just straining to get over the line they should have got over the line as well horrendous run out involving uh klusner and alan donald and they you know they bottled it right at the last they were they they had the game right in the palm of their hand and they threw away. They threw away a World Cup final chance. And of course they've they've never made it. So you know they, they do regret that day. And that's that's where the, the chokers tag for South Africa has come from. Australia how how they pulled that off I don't know because they actually they should have um been eliminated in the competition when Herschel Gibbs dropped that catch at Headingley and Steve War. But well, he did I don't think he did say it, but he's supposed to have said uh, you've just dropped the World Cup, mate.
1: Yeah. As with all good quotes, about half of it was true. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I yeah. should say as well, um, that uh, as previous listeners to this pod, will know we're, Eugene Berger is our, is our tech guy and he famously sits in the background and says very little he's struggling here because of course Eugene's South African. And I know he's chomping at the bit to get in about that, uh, that famous 1999 game, but we're not going to let him, uh, his time will come to have, uh, have a go on that one, uh, a bit later on. Um, one further question then about, about TMS. I mean, it sounds very glamorous to be going around the world, uh, watching a fantastic product in great places. Um, but there must be highs and lows, right? And 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 so, what would be the thing you like most about sort of being on the TMS circuit? And, and what's the most tricky bit?
2: Um, it, it is fantastic, actually. It's hard. It's hard to think of uh, downsides. I think the downsides would be uh, family ones, really, that you're away from your family for for a long time. I mean, I've been away from. Family at Christmas, and I have two daughters, and I think they find that uh, difficult, and I find it difficult as well. So I think that's the that's the downside of it is that you know it does put pressure on on family life. The upside is there are there are many of them really. I was I mentioned rugby union; I played a lot of it when I was younger. Uh, Rugby union really is endless winter for those uh, journalists covering teams (laughs) that's right, like England. (laughs) Whereas cricket is endless summer, and uh, what's not to like about that? I've just come back from New Zealand. Uh, f- four weeks of really pleasant conditions, interesting cricket. Uh, it, it 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 sounds glamorous, and um, sorry to say, it is. I mean, it is it is great fun, and I'll, when it does eventually uh, come to an end for one reason or another, I, I will miss it enormously. But I've been doing it for twenty five years, and I, I've still got the bug. It, you know, there's nothing quite like being in Brisbane for the first day of the of the Ashes series. There's fantastic buzz around the city, and getting walking to the the Gabba on the morning of the game, a tremendous sense of anticipation, going to a test match in, in India and in, in Mumbai. I mean, I, I love going to India. The passion for the game there is is phenomenal. But there's also something beguiling about, you know, doing a test match in, in New Zealand at the Bay Oval, you know, with grassy banks and four or 5,000 people sitting in the sunshine. It's a lovely, relaxed atmosphere. I think that's what I like about international cricket. There's, there's so much uh, diversity in you know, every country is so different and uh, it, you know the other thing about it as well is you get a chance to go to different countries different cultures see the world and it, it is the cricket world is so um different you know South Africa compared to Bangladesh compared to the UAE compared to New Zealand and it, there's so much so much difference there and, it, and you and you really relish seeing it all
3: Simon I was going to ask you so obviously when you're abroad you you're pretty sort of tied up in what you're doing what kind of sort of prep do you have to do pre-match and during a match in terms of your commentating uh
2: different people approach it in different ways actually some people see it as see what you just say what you see in front of you I take a slightly different view from that I think you do yeah you do say what you see I don't think you want to be you're already sort of bogged down in in, in loads and loads and loads of of stats, but I think you you need to sort of have enough preparation in front of you that you can give give context uh, to what you're seeing. Um, I think it's like that. So uh, you know, I I would do a a profile of each of the player, little profile of each of the player, uh, recent form, general test record, uh, where they're from, uh, that sort of thing. Um, so you, so you've got something on it on each player, uh, quite a bit of information on on both teams recent records, uh, trends, things like that. But, of course, we have got a, we have got brilliant statisticians. We've got a brilliant statistician um, on Test Match Special, or well two, actually, Andy Zaltzman on, on white ball cricket and Andrew Sampson on, on red ball cricket. So you, you use them as well. They are mine of information. So it's, it's getting that, that balance right. I think what you can not want is a commentator...
1: Yeah, can I ask you this one very quickly on that? Uh, now, the stats that they come out with, they do so ridiculously quickly. I mean, and, and I can't imagine that you can feed them any of this information because you're commentating on what you're seeing. How do they do it? Uh, have they just got search engines that are better than ours? Or, or some of the the level of stat mania that those guys possess is just it's just beyond belief, no? The, the, the speed that they do their job.
2: Yeah, Andrew has his own um, – created his own database. So, he's yeah, so he's got the answers at the – the tip of his finger. Ah, you know, so he is computer. cheating in a way. Okay,
1: that's good to know. Well he's
2: not well he's but he, but he's he's thought about it in advance. He's thought about the type of things that he might need. So that there's genius in that, I think. So he'll come into a test match and he'll he'll know what's required. He'll know the type of things that might come up during the game, so he'll be prepared for it. So his his genius is in his preparation as well. But he's also got this ph- phenomenal um stats person mind as well, which which helps him out. And some things he doesn't know, and he'll look them up, just like you or I will do. But other things, you ask him a question, and he says something like, yeah, I thought that might come up today, and that's why he's so quick with it.
3: That's very good. <clears throat> I was going to ask as well. I mean, obviously, you've, you've done so many games now in your in your career. Countless, I, I mean, would you think, over 200, 300 maybe, would you would you say, test matches you've commentated on? Or is that too I many? Don't,
2: I don't know, Sal, uh, to be honest. Uh, I've never I never sat down and thought about it. Actually, how many games I've done, but you know, just Andrew, we'll know just ask Andrew. We all know, yeah, <laughs> not not just tests, but you know, a lot of white ball cricket as well. Lots of uh, one day internationals. I think I am the only person in the world to have seen uh, every single England one day international in India this century. Uh, there might be a few Indians who've done it, but from outside of India, I think I'm the only person. In the world that's uh, been present at every single England One Day International in India in, in the 21st century, I'm not sure that's a huge claim to fame, but but it's certainly true. You must I have watched some way. England
1: batterings there, some dodgy batting over the years. Yeah. The way England used to play One Day cricket in India.
2: Oh yeah, I mean they've been yeah, I've I've seen them thrash and pillar to post. Uh, yeah, <laughs> annihilated, annihilated in <laughs> India. <laughs>
3: So, Simon, if you could choose one game then which you've commentated on is, is that stands out in memory, which you'll you know never forget, which one would it be, which was your highlight?
2: Yeah, that's a really that's a really interesting question, difficult question to answer. I think I'd I probably go for two. I, and until this year at, at Headingley, when Ben Stokes won that game for e- England in, in a miraculous victory, I mean, it was incredible. incredible noise at Headingley that day. It was just like something I'd never experienced before. And I'd been at the World Cup final as well. Uh, you know, a month before, and the noise there was phenomenal. But the sense of excitement and feverishness building as, as Stokes was doing what he was doing, uh, it, it was it was miraculous. Some of the shots he was playing were absolutely stunning. But before that match, I would say Chennai, when England um, set India around about three hundred and eighty odd to win, and Tendulkar made a hundred, and Saywag batted brilliantly, and in India chased down England's. Uh, target huge score to win in, in the fourth innings stunning game Andrew Strauss made uh, hundreds in both innings Graham Swan made his debut and took two wickets in his first over Kevin Peterson was captain England going back to India after the Mumbai bombings and going back and playing in, in Chennai that's a game that really uh stands out okay it was an England defeat but it was just a phenomenal uh game of cricket brilliant game of cricket and a, and a stunning finale and it had that sort of Almost scripted element to it as well with Tendulkar, Indian hero, Mumbai boy, scoring a hundred in the fourth innings to take India over the line. A game really they shouldn't have won, and they scored what three eight eight, I think it was, to win in the final innings three eight in- five three eight eight. Incredible uh, victory, and I think that's probably the most memorable game I've commentated on. But uh, you know, it's, it, there have been a few.
1: Brilliant, fantastic. The way I always thought about that, and again, this is just pure as a cricket watcher, after watching the World Cup final this year, and I guess I'm, I'm something of a purist, Test match cricket is, is sort of my natural home, that what I thought the day after was that, you know, if I died tomorrow, I can say I saw that game. I never saw that ending coming. No one would ever have predicted what happened, and yet it did. And I thought, you know, that game was is was, pretty much unbeatable until, of course, as you said, Heddenley comes along uh, and Stokes does something totally different. But um, it equally, is unbelievable. It's why the game, I guess, is is the fantastic thing that it is. Different line now, Simon. Rumour has it, okay, and it was on the internet, so it must be true um, huh. that you had a, you had a nice line in stand up comedy once. Is this right?
2: Uh, well, this this story—it was on the internet, been, Simon.
1: You can't deny it; must th- be true.
2: This story has been embellished a little bit, but the, the the truth is, I actually told this story on Test Match Special. I was in in New Zealand as I was asked about it there, but basically. Um, I did a stand-up uh, comedy course at a club in in North London, uh, just oh. from my own interests, really, uh, in just to see what it was like, uh, to see whether how much you can learn from uh, the techniques, and and perhaps you know, I don't know, get some confidence from actually doing it yourself, see what it was like, see what the whole experience was like. But it would have been a hugely private thing. But uh, the pub in North London in which I was doing it on about the eighth week that I did it it was a it was a course over several months um just happened to have um Peter Moores in it who was England coach at the time and Derek Pringle uh who is uh, a journalist for the independent former England player of course and he, asked, he said oh what are you doing here and I said oh I was a bit sheepish I said just you know we're doing this course so he investigated a bit further and then he told another journalist who stuck it in the paper so that's how that, that's how it it came about. So it was a completely private thing that became a, a public thing through uh, Derek Pringle. <laughs> that's right. I've just said, I
1: never knew there were stand up comedy courses. Uh, genuinely, uh, that, that's a new one on me. I just thought people were very brave and stood up and hoped for the best. But um, but h- how long was the course? It sounds like it was quite a
2: thing. Yeah, it was about, I can remember now, it was a few years back now. Uh, Peter Moores was in the coach. I'll tell you how far back it was. But uh, over three months something, something like every Wednesday uh, for three months and one of the most actually one of the most fascinating and challenging things that I've ever done I think there are people that do just go for it and go to um, open mic nights and have a go at, you know from young age student age for example and and build their careers like that and there are other people who go on comedy courses of which I understand there there are Many, many. So um, I would I would say that if you've got the chance to do it and that's your interest, that's your bent, go for it because they are they are tremendous fun and you will learn a lot.
1: The only problem I've got is I'm not, not very funny, so and I'm not sure it would would work for me. But I I, I admire people who, who stand up and have uh, you know have the strength to go to go and do that. Sal, over to you.
3: Simon, you know you mentioned this now. Bernie Andrews will be tapping you up now for the next club uh, dinner. You know to do to, a <laughs> little routine. Should have kept it quiet, mate.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, it's it's already out there sal I've, I've i've been asked actually i think i think okay. uh, I, I think they wanted me to do something this um this november but i was in new zealand so i, I couldn't make it
1: okay, no worries you're, you're quite likely to have a get out of jail card aren't you there with it with england playing so much cricket these days and, and having to go abroad so um yeah but um we generally finish, Simon, with a few quick fire questions. So, um, in that spirit, we've got 10 questions we'd like to fire at you. Um, the first answer this you think of. This is the thing
2: of... I'm most nervous about.
1: Right. OK, well, the first answer you think of is the right answer. OK, um, I just, that's all I'll say. Shall I go first? You can go first. You want? Yeah, fire away. Yeah, is that OK?
3: And also, the last question, Simon, you have to sort of um, elaborate on the story. So, when you come to it, just just bear in mind the question. OK, uh, the first one is, though, is uh, who'd you go for, Jeff Boycott or Henry Boyle Blofeld? in terms of commentating?
2: Oh, that's an impossible question to answer. You can't give me that one to start with. They're both so different. One's a commentator, one's a summariser, and they're both brilliant.
1: Okay. Oh, you definitely work for the BBC, don't you? My goodness, that's, that's a great course. answer. Of course, we knew you wouldn't be able to, to give us one of those. But, Ashes Test Match or World Cup Final? And I think we're meaning basically Stokes' Ashes Test Match at Headingley. You have to choose one of them. Which would you go for?
2: Oh. I think World Cup final, because it was a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. The Headingley test was was similar in a way. You'll you'll never see anything like that again. But for England to win a World Cup, I've seen England win Ashes Test matches. I've seen them win Ashes Test series, but I've never seen them win a World Cup. So I'll go for World Cup final.
1: Fair enough.
3: Who'd you go for in this situation? Uh, Sir Ian Botham or Ben Stokes? (sighs)
2: Sir Ian Botham. I think he was uh, the biggest sporting star when I was uh, growing up, and you know, you you wanted to imitate the way he played cricket. The one, one thing I remember, about Ian and both of them, and one one shot that I really liked. I talked about some shot playing in in club cricket. One shot I liked, and both them played it, and I tried to copy. And was the big booming drive in the air down the ground to the long on all. Long off boundary, so that you know that's what that's what great players do, don't they? They they capture your imagination. You try to emulate them.
1: They get you out in club cricket. That's what you mean, Simon, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they're not, out they're not even at the ground, and they get you out. Yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I totally hear you. Um, next one, then the Caribbean tour or the Ashes tour?
2: The Ashes tour. No, no doubt okay. about that. The Ashes tour much much better than the Caribbean tour. Uh, the reason for that, I think, is because West Indies cricket has, has declined. I I miss the great west indies era when i think it was a massive challenge to go there and the crowds were big and the atmosphere was great so i wish is a huge shame but yeah definitely for me ashes tour over caribbean tour.
1: i must admit if i could just say one thing on that quickly i totally get it because i, I went to a, a test match in the caribbean just when it was sort of turning to be um the southeast england on holiday uh, mm. and then i went to another one about 10 years later and it really was like the oval and I didn't. I didn't really want to go to the Caribbean to to to, to then find myself at the Oval. Not that I dislike the Oval, but it it wasn't quite the way Caribbean cricket sort of was in my mind, and I was a bit disappointed by it. And England were also they t- totally dominated that series, so it was it was very one sided. But there we go. So at the moment, we've got two amazing batsmen
3: dominating world cricket. At a minute, who would you go for, Steve Smith or Virat Kohli? Uh,
2: Virat Kohli, uh, mm. greater all round game. Both both. Stunning, both brilliant. I think, I just, Coley is is more fun to watch. There's something too quirky about Steve Smith's batting, all, you know, all that working to the leg side. It's not particularly elegant. For for, for elegance, for a player that can uh, beguile you, Virat Coley, no doubt about it.
1: Do you not think as well, when Steve Smith's technique goes, well, when, when, he, when his hand-eye goes, it all goes? Whereas someone like that- Coley because technically he's a strong player, um, you, you think he's got a bit more life in him after that. Not the sleeves, it's not brilliant, but his technique's so quirky.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree. Uh, they're both fantastic players. And what Smith yep. achieved this summer was, was remarkable. But I just think as a stylist and an all-round player as well, in all three formats, uh, Coley. Makes sense
1: to me. Right, we, we, these are all, those are all warm-ups. We're getting to the really serious <laughs> stuff now, Simon, okay? This is one that, that's close to my heart. Uh, Victoria sponge or chocolate cake?
2: Oh, that—that's that, the easiest question, the easiest question really? you've asked me so far. But both, uh, yeah. surely? Oh, well, well, it, it, both in a way, but chocolate cake is—is is a clear—is a clear leader, no doubt about Contraver- it. Chocolate cake, controversial. Yeah. Mm, okay. If you want to send the cake to the Test match special box, chocolate cake is the one to send.
1: Yeah, I'm not sending. them in Victoria sponges—I'll keep them to myself.
3: Now, earlier on, you mentioned this, so we'll remind you, remind you about this one now. So, what was the worst drop? Yours of Tom Amadie at Old Actonians, or Joe Denny last week against New Zealand? <laughs>
1: <laughs> can you elaborate on the background to that, Sal? I wasn't at Actonians that day, and were you? No, this, this, was was, going on? This, was, this was passed on to me by a good friend of Simon's,
3: Phil Strongman, who um, told me to ask him this one. So, he can... So I'm doing a on this one. What happened in the yeah, day? yeah?
2: I can, I can, you know, I can still see it now. I can still see the <laughs> drop of Tom Tom Amity. I, it, it haunts me. I, I, Sal might back me up on this. He might not. But I used to go through seasons without dropping a catch. So yeah, you were great. When I dropped, work. when I dropped a catch, I used to. I really hated it, and I used to it used to bug me for a whole week. And I used to play it over in my mind. But I was feeling it second slip. It was early on. Tom Amity, who was he was a very useful uh, opening bowler a tall, nice, lovely, lovely action, a bit of bounce as well. He just took the shoulder of the bat of a right-hander and the ball looped in the air to me at second slip. And I was probably still thinking about my chocolate cake at tea, (laughs) And I I dropped it. And I don't know why I dropped it. So I would say Joe Denley's was worse for this reason, that any slip catch is a difficult catch. Um, Although it wasn't that difficult, but Joe Denley's was just incredible. I remember I was sitting at the back of the box last week in Hamilton, and I'm, I just went, ah, what on earth was that? That was my reaction <laughs> when I saw it, uh, when it went down. It was, it was uh, astonishing. But, yeah. Um, but um, went I, at least you weren't up at
1: 3 a.m. in the morning watching it, Simon. You know, that, it's even worse <laughs> when you're in that position.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the old Actonians catch was a bad one, though, I admit. So we can all do it. That's the thing. I, I actually, I actually, someone challenged me on it. I said, you know, it, you know one of the worst catches ever at, at, at test level and someone came back and said at any level I said no no not any level because I've seen plenty of catches drop like that at Club of Cricket I'm sure Sal's uh, dropped a few yeah, as well I'm sure you, you have, have as well
1: I have I, I'm not saying yeah. any more, but yes I have for sure um, okay last one from me and then Sal's got one more um, you, going back to sort of you know you, on the BBC you've commentated a lot on football and you've reported a lot on football so um, given that you're from Bristol um, City or Rovers
2: well that's not even a question, is it? I mean, there's only, there's only one team in Bristol, really. And Go they on. play Ashton Gate and they play in red and they are fourth in the championship.
1: Well, commiserations on the cup exit. I mean, you know, getting knocked out in the third round by a League One side is, is going to be tough. But I mean, you know, I've called it now. You're playing Shrewsbury Town, in case you didn't know, Simon. And, and we're I on the march. Yeah, we're on I the march. That. Yeah, did yeah, know Yeah. Good, good. Good, good. Sal?
3: OK, last one, Simon. And this is again from your good mate Phil, Strongers. And it reminds me of a tour you went on in Sri Lanka and he he's asked me to ask you, what are Sri Lankan waiters better at doing? Serving food or hitting stickers off your bowling?
2: Ah, uh, no, 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 he's wrong about that. Now I'm gonna <laughs> the record straight up. Let me let me just tell you a little bit about that tour. We went on tour to Sri Lanka. It was a club North London, uh, with a club from Yorkshire called Thorna. I knew David Hobbs, who's the guardian journalist, and he was heavily involved in Thorna and we we joined up the two clubs. We went on a tour of uh, Sri Lanka in the 90s brilliant fun except that we were destroyed in every game that we played except we got to the last match and the captaincy was shared around and I was the captain for the last match but the opponents didn't turn up so at the last moment uh, the local Sri Lankans they got a team of waiters from the hotel we were staying in to play against us and so on we went and we were winning the game I was the captain we were winning the game we got some runs on the board the pitch was a bit dodgy. We were working their way through their batting. And a lot of the North London guys were bowling because we had we, we provided the bowlers and Thorner provided the, the batsmen. But there's one or two who didn't have a game. And because I'm a benevolent soul, I brought on <laughs> to bowl one or two of the people from Thorner who perhaps weren't that good at bowling. And then all of a sudden, the game got out of control and sixes uh, were being hit mercilessly and the game slipped away. And it was a very quiet change room afterwards. So basically, we lost the game. I was the captain, so I took the blame. But we lost the game because I was being benevolent and I just wanted everyone to have a game, which is what club cricket is about, isn't it? It's about participation. It's not about two or three people um, doing everything. And that's the reason we lost. But um, actually, afterwards, in my canvassed opinion, everyone said, no, we just wanted to win. Just just keep the best bowlers on. So yeah, that's, that's the story there. I did not bowl. I have to tell you, I did not bowl. Oh. I brought. I brought on the bowlers who were thrashed for sixes and oh, okay. then lost the game. Oh, okay. And the other thing about that, just one final point about that um tour, was that I remember clearly to this day, David Hobbs was organizing it, the, the Guardian journalist as, as was then. And we got to the final day, we had our sort of last meal celebration, and then that evening someone knocked on someone knocked on David Hobbs' door and said, uh David, you, you've got the flights down for tomorrow. I think we're supposed to have left today. And he checked, and you're absolutely <laughs> right.
0: Absolutely right.
2: We missed, every, so about 30 people missed their flights home. And we were there in Sri Lanka for another three or four days. And, and there was a big team meeting, and all the all the Yorkies were saying, but, but David, I've um, I've ordered my milk to turn up tomorrow. What am I going to do? And um, my newspapers, they're, they're going to be delivered tomorrow. So he, he had to sort it all out. And uh, yeah, it was a huge cock up, but it was a, it, it's a funny story to tell you know, you know and look back on that we missed our flight home. And I remember flying, I think, vying about We stopped at about six different venues in the Middle East on the way home, but we were lucky to get there. My girlfriend at the time actually was supposed to be reading the news on Five Live, but and she missed about four shifts. But it actually ended up <laughs> being an elong, elongated holiday of uh, sitting around a pool for another four days. I didn't mind it, but a few people wanted to get back and were a bit annoyed.
1: Oh, that's brilliant, and that sends a shiver down my spine because Twickenham are going on tour uh, in February to South Africa, and uh, we're very much looking forward to it. But yeah, we, we could do with getting the flights home. That that would cause one or two complications if we if we didn't. <laughs> Simon, we've um we're running a little bit against the clock here. Um, thanks very much for taking the time to, to speak to us. We we really appreciate it. Um, and you know it's fascinating to listen to your your stories of um uh, of your your playing and your your watching days. Um, is there anything you want to finish off with? Any last uh, last line or two?
2: I would say enjoy your club cricket uh, while you can, because uh, when you can't play, you'll you'll miss it hugely. I miss it hugely. So relish relish every dry Saturday, Sunday, midweek game, whether it be a T20 or a 50 over or whatever it is, just relish it, enjoy it while you can. And play a few attacking shots. Don't be boring defensive like me. That
1: seems like a really good way to end it. Simon, we appreciate you uh, coming on. Um, Thanks very much, and see everybody again soon. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network.